Welcome to Woven today. I'm glad that I can worship together with you. Today we're going to talk about singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And as we sang this morning, thanks to the worship team for leading us, I found myself uplifted. I found myself in the cross and renewed in my strength and hope and hope. Speaking of hope, if I can just uh, go off the script here a little bit. When the Astros won the World Series, the sense of hope that I felt, uh, you know, just living here for seven years, uh, any day now, in a couple of days, it's going to be the start of my eighth year, eighth year here in Houston. And, you know, back in the day, you know, when I lived in New York City, I followed the Yankees in the 90s when they were a small ball team. Um, And when they won the World Series, it was great. And I cheered. I went to the parade and everything. But this year, it was different. And just FYI, I have changed my allegiances, just letting you know that. I, I almost cried when, when we won the World Series. I didn't cry when the Yankees. I almost cried when the Astros won the World Series. It, it speaks of tremendous hope. Um, this week, Paul, Bobby, myself, we got to have a, a very strategic meeting for our church. Hope. A lot of hope. Um, the LT, we're going to meet today after the service, and uh, they're going to be updated on a lot of these details. We're going to plan uh, sometime in November. Uh, well, that's this month. Pretty soon here in a couple of Sundays, we are going to have a town hall meeting that's going to be open for members and uh, non-members as well. It's going to be basically open forum for everybody to attend, and we're going to share some of these feelings of hope. This has been a tremendous uplift week for me, a lot of hope, seeing our team win having a great meeting on Friday, the hope and the future of our church, of this beloved community, Um, hope. And so I want to get us back into Ephesians today, and if together with me, if we can all just take a deep breath, sometimes hope needs to fill your lungs, sometimes hope, we need to pause, we need to pray, it's not enough to just come and muster up courage We need to find hope. We need to pray. We need to commit our our cause to the Lord. We've been in a series here at Woven talking about the book of Ephesians, and this series is called Dear Woven, as the Apostle Paul speaks to this new society, this new humanity. And I think what Paul is trying to do is cast a vision uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, about God bringing everything together in Christ, everything made right in Christ in heaven and on earth. And he has this pilot project, this beta version. If God is bringing everything in heaven and on earth and reconciling everything in Christ, Ephesians 1.10, we need to see this on the earth, boots on the ground. We need to see this lived out as Jew and Gentile live together in harmony. And I've read Ephesians many times in the past. This is the first time as I've studied it very deeply that I'm so struck with just how much Ephesians really is about the multi-ethnic church, really is about these cross-cultural relations. And so today we're going to talk along two headings, and I'm going to recap in the first heading today, a new humanity. Paul constantly talking about this new society. If God is bringing heaven and earth together, then we need to see it Um, practically worked out as this new humanity is brought together. So that's the first heading as we recap that. But the bulk of today's talk is going to be in the second part, the ethics of a new humanity. Well, great. 
We can just dream about a multi-ethnic church, different races brought together, but how do people get along? How do people get along? Uh, somebody just, just recently shared with me even some of the racial tensions that exist in society. These are real things. We don't just bring together different peoples and say, have at it, and we're all one. There are ethics of a new humanity, ethics of a new humanity. And so we begin with that first part, a new humanity, as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to be reading a lot of Scripture today. In fact, I'm going to be scanning through the second half of chapter 4 and then all of chapter 5, because this is one big section as it talks about the ethics of a new humanity. So, chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles. So, there's that word again, walk. And that word walk appears often throughout the book of Ephesians. It's uh, the Greek word. It just doesn't talk about walking, but it talks about walking around. Peri, pateo. Peri is the word where we get perimeter, uh, periphery. And so there's a sense where you walk around the perimeter, where you walk around the periphery. You're walking through life. You're walking circumspect. You're walking in a certain way. Walk around the world. Walk around in life, not like the Gentiles anymore. So he's talking about how we carry ourselves. Before you were Christians, um, before I was a Christian, I carried myself in a certain way. I carried myself with a swagger that said, don't touch me, or I am afraid, or don't get too close. Now Paul says, walk with a different swagger, walk differently, and don't walk like you used to. And this is how we used to walk in verse 18, being darkened in our understanding. Don't walk like, we, like the Gentiles, formerly, darkened in their understanding. And there's a sense where you, you can know a lot. There's a sense where you can be a very uh, rational, logical person, and yet at the same time be so cynical, so dark. Um, I know Christians in our past have been intolerant, and that's inexcusable. But I've discovered recently that atheists, agnostics, can be just as intolerant. That there are those who stand for intolerance and those who uh, stand for fairness and, and a just society, and yet at the same time are just as belligerent in their views. And so there's a sense where we can be so-called enlightened, we can experience the, the enlightenment, the secular enlightenment, and still really be cold, be very cynical. Paul says, Paul is saying here, just because you're enlightened doesn't mean that you're really enlightened. We can be darkened in our understanding. And he continues on, don't be like that where you used to know everything, but really you knew nothing. You used to know everything, but your hearts were cold. So, excluded from the life of God because of ignorance, because of the hardness of heart. So, it's possible to be enlightened, and I mean that by, you know, I mean that by, in terms of the secular enlightenment. It's possible to know so much and yet have hearts that are so hardened. And that word there, hardened, means calloused. Calloused. It speaks of a sense where, uh, you, know, uh, you know, in my day I've done a little bit of weightlifting. And so you start to develop calluses over here. And you don't feel. Or when you play guitar, you develop calluses in your fingertips. And you don't feel anymore. But what Paul says is these people having, formerly when you were Gentiles, 
you were darkened in your understanding, you had the hardness of heart, and in verse 19, becoming callous, gave yourselves over to the sensuality for every practice of impurity with greediness. It's kind of like leprosy. Leprosy is a condition where your nerves, as I understand, they, they, you know, they no longer function. Your nerves die out or they no longer send signals to the brain. And what happens is because you're not feeling pain anymore, parts of your body become calloused. Parts of our bodies become callous. And it gets to the point where we start waving our hand over the fire or, or getting ourselves hurt. Anything, so long as we can feel. So long as we can feel. Imagine how crazy that would be if you don't feel anything and there's a fire and you can just put your hand there and your hand's cooking but you don't feel. Um, and that's what Paul's talking about here. Hearts that become calloused no longer sense, no longer feel. And as a result, you become greedy for feeling. As a result, we become greedy to feel, to experience, to have sense experience, whether it's pleasure or pain, anything, so long as I can feel again. And this is a very uh, real indictment of, of Greco-Roman society back then, but also today. I think people today are addicted to feeling, addicted to feeling. I just read in Time magazine about teenagers who are so addicted to their smart devices and they're taking them into their bedrooms at night, just seeking some kind of stimulation, feeling something. You know what it's like to be a teenager. I mean, most of us do, where you can kind of be a zombie. You don't feel anything, but then you're stimulated. And what's happening is these young people are becoming depressed and untold in greater numbers than ever before. Why? Because our hearts are calloused, hardened over, and we're doing whatever we can to feel again. We're waving our hand over the fire, whether it's pleasure or pain, anything, so that I can feel again. We are addicted to feeling. And Paul changes and he says, but listen, previously this is who we were. We were Gentiles that were addicted to feeling, hearts calloused, darkened in our understanding. But in verse 20, you did not learn Christ this way. You discovered when you became a Christian that understanding and so-called enlightenment is not everything, but that there's a different way, there's a different, lice, uh, a different life mandated by grace. You did not learn Christ in this way. There's a different way in verse 21. If indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Lay aside the old self. And so there's a couple of catchphrases that Paul is using over and over again. One of them, and you know, since we're doing a little Bible study today, I mean, that's what we're going to do on Sunday, right? Underline some of these catchphrases. The first one, anybody remember what that was? Walk. So for Paul, all throughout Ephesians, if you're going to study Ephesians, and I encourage you to read Ephesians alongside this series, that word walk is important. But also, another theme that's important here is this phrase, laying aside, and there's this real sense almost of changing clothes where Paul says, lay aside the old self and put on the new self. Christians at this time in the early church, you know when they got baptized, it was much more elaborate than the way we do baptisms today. I assume that baptism was gender specific at that time. Uh, according to some accounts, people would go into the waters um, naked, no clothes, they were literally laying aside, laying aside. You see that phrase here? 
in verse uh, 22, laying aside the old self. And there was a sense where the old dirty clothes were laid aside and they would enter into the water, baptized, and when they would come out of the water, they were given every new Christian, every newly baptized Christian was given a white robe. And so there's this very real sense, I think Paul, in a very real way, talks about laying aside the old, the old uh, soiled garments and putting on the new self, the new self, white robes, clean garments. And so you see that in verse 24 as well. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness. So laying aside the old and putting on the new. All to say that Paul is saying, listen, you're joining this new experimental community called Ecclesia Church. I think the proper pronunciation is not Ecclesia, it's Ecclesia. You're joining this new experiment, Ecclesia, and you have to live in a different way. If Jews and Gentiles are going to get together, it's no longer going to be the old way of living. Take off the old, put on the new. So it was very almost literal for early Christians. And so with this, this sense of being the newly clothed society, woven, you are the newly clothed ones, how do we live this out? How do we keep, how do we live so that your white robe doesn't get blemished and stained again? You got to love this. Parents, it's like a wonderful, awesome, just, just test. Clothe your children with white robes and see how long they can manage to stay unblemished. How can we live as the newly clothed ones, this new humanity unblemished? That word unblemished comes up a lot in Paul's language as well. Paul's personal mission is, is to present his church community or communities to God blameless, unblemished. Oftentimes, he uses that language. So how in the world are we going to live the rest of our lives without spots and blemish on our, on our robes, white robes, this newly clothed humanity? This gets us into the second, the second heading, ethics of a new humanity. And this is where we're going to kind of hang out for a bit as I talk about seven ethics, seven fill-in-the-blanks, seven things that I think Paul is teaching us how, that, how to live in order to keep ourselves from soiling our new clothes. Soiling our new clothes. And so this is how, in verse 25, therefore, lay aside. There's that phrase again, lay aside, take off. Take off what? Take off falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So previously, Paul talks about how Jews and Gentiles, we become members of this new community, bricks of this new house. Because we're members, we can no longer tell half-truths. We can no longer lie. We have to do, uh, we have to practice, and this is the first ethic, truth-telling. We have to practice truth-telling. Now, for me, I've been learning this, I've been practicing this in many different regards. Pastors, we love to inflate numbers. It's something that's almost just a weakness of ours. How many people are in your church? Well, counting kids or not counting kids, you know? Or in whatever way, inflating, either inflating or not being totally honest. On the one hand, we're embellishing the truth. On the other hand, we're withholding the truth. Either embellishing the truth or withholding the truth. Either way, it's not exactly truth-telling. And so the practice of truth-telling I've been learning in recent years is such an integral part of our character 
I, I wonder what I was doing ever since I was young. Without telling the truth, um, it's almost like a, a critical moral component of our makeup is missing. And it's never too late to start, but it, it's hard, and we have to start telling the truth. And that goes both ways. On the one hand, we practice truth-telling for ourselves because we need to learn to, we need to become moral creatures again. But secondly, sometimes we also have to tell the truth, speaking the truth to one another, not falsehood. We need to tell the truth for the sake of the other person. Therefore, laying aside falsehood. If I were a doctor and I had a friend, and my friend was not doing well physically, and I said, oh, you're fine. I don't want to tell you that actually you're sick. That would not be doing a good service. That would not be practicing truth-telling either. So truth-telling has this double side. On the one hand, we need to do it for ourselves, for the sake of our own moral integrity. But on the other side, sometimes somebody needs to hear the truth. So truth-telling, laying aside falsehood for ourselves and for the sake of each other is very important. We move on to the second ethic. So the first ethic is practice truth-telling. The second ethic, I think, is in... It's consistent with this. And this second ethic uh, in verse 26 and 27, I've done some reflection on this verse, and I've actually gotten a lot out of this. Who would have thought that the preacher prepares a sermon and actually gets a lot out of it? That's, that's, why I, that, that's the part of my job that I really love. It says, be angry and yet do not sin. Be angry and don't sin. This is one of the most often quoted verses in Ephesians. But the thing is, we have, to we have to remind ourselves, be angry and don't sin, in this context, is speaking about a Jewish and Gentile society learning to get along. So it's good for us to remind ourselves that being angry and, and not sinning, is, it's not just this arbitrary you know, uh, commentary about anger. It's talking about how to get along as a multi-ethnic church. Be angry and yet don't sin. But the thing is, that first, section, that first phrase is often quoted. I think it's like a caboose. Uh, you have a train, and then there's two more sections after that that have to come together. You cannot just say, be angry and don't sin. Because the second part of this train is, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And the third part of this train is, is do not give the devil an opportunity. So, be angry and don't sin. Secondly, what is it? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And third, don't give the devil an opportunity. So if you're ever going to quote this verse again, be angry and don't sin, listen, make sure you append the second and the third part. I'll explain why. I'll explain why. How many have ever seen in, on videos nuclear explosion? You know, you see like these video, you see these video clips of, you know, a bomb in the mushroom cloud and all these houses leveled. Well, let me ask you, what's worse? What's worse in your opinion? Actually, raise your hand and tell me. Two aspects to a nuclear explosion. The first is the impact, and everything is destroyed, and there's a hole in the ground. That's bad. That's pretty bad. Of course it's bad. But then after that, you have the radioactive fallout. And the radioactive fallout lasts a million years. It lasts a million years, and you cannot rebuild. So just you know, taking a survey, who thinks the initial impact is worse than the radioactive fallout? All right, who thinks the radioactive fallout is worse? Raise your hand. Interesting. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Because I think anger, when it comes to anger, that first part of the verse, be angry yet don't sin, 
is kind of like the initial impact of the nuclear bomb. In other words, be angry, but don't leave a hole in the ground. And so we quote that verse, and we say, okay, I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to be angry. But then there's the second half of this verse that says, but you can almost put the but, the, 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 the contrary position. But at the same time, don't let the sun go down while you are still being passive-aggressively angry. That's not what it says there. But I think the sentiment that Paul is talking about here is, great, you're not leaving a hole in the ground, but on the other end, you are going to bed angry, turning your back to your spouse or whatever it is, or you're letting the sun set. Literally, that's how it translates. Don't let the sun set on your anger. And basically, the resentment is lingering, becoming this million-year radioactivity phenomenon. Do you hear that? So on the one end, well, I'm not being explosively angry but on the other hand, other, hand, other hand, you're not being explosively angry, but at the same time, yeah, I'm being very passive-aggressive and resentful. Now, what's worse? Kind of like the nuclear explosion, being angry and leaving a mess and a hole in the ground? Or, on the other hand, the million-year resentment. Because resentment outlasts the stars. And then there's a the third part of the caboose of the train. Lest we give, what does it say? An opportunity for the devil. Is that what it says? But you know how this translates? Mire de Dante. Don't give tapon space. Space. So keep in mind, Paul's talking to the church, this new church community. Because when it comes to the church community, there are, believe me, there are always going to be conflicts. On the one hand, don't leave a hole in the ground. But on the other hand, don't go to bed with resentment. And don't let the sun set with resentment. Why? Because if the sun sets with resentment, what happens to the church? There's a space for the devil to play. Resentment gives space to the devil to play. Literally, that's how it translates. Don't give space to the devil. I think Paul is very wise here. I've never seen this before in this verse. There are three parts. On the one hand, don't leave a hole in the ground. On the other hand, don't go to bed resentful, lest we give space to the devil in the church. Imagine that. I mean, there's a couple of seats here, right? And there's, there's the devil. There's a devil sitting right there. Why? What gives the devil a seat in the church or in the synagogue? Friends, what's the answer? It's resentment. You hear that? It's resentment. What a powerful message. What a powerful, powerful message. I don't know about you guys. I like to live here more. I like to live on this resentful side anymore. Why, do I, why am I not explosive? I can be explosive with my anger. I, I have been in the past. But the thing is, I, I, I'm more fearful. So I'd rather be passive-aggressive. Passive Man, I could nurse a grudge. I could nurse a grudge. But the thing is, it appears to me of the two, it is very dangerous. Very da Both of them are dangerous, don't get me wrong. Sometimes when you are explosively angry, words, you can't take them back. But resentment, something about that, gives space to the devil. And so how do we find this happy middle? And that seems to be a lot of life, learning either on the one hand, 
how to be explosively angry or on the other hand, just button my lip and just be grumpy and resentful. But where do we find this middle ground? And that's just, I think, I have a friend who's much older than myself who advises me on life regularly. And he says, Wayne, that's just maturity. That's just maturity. That just takes a lot of maturity. This experience of learning somehow to be in the middle. And this is the second ethic, and I think it connects with the first one. The first one is practice truth-telling. The second one is practice crucial conversations. Crucial conversations. There's actually a book called Crucial Conversations. Somebody was recommending it to me. (laughs) And in therapeutic circles, this is supposed to be a really good book. Um, I have not read it yet. Our staff, we've been... We were supposed to read it for like the last entire summer, but we have it. We're going to be using it as a staff staff discussion. Crucial conversations, on the one hand, are not, um, you know, these kind of verbal diarrhea. And on the other hand, it's not passive aggressive because you must learn. We must learn to have crucial conversations. That's how I interpret this second ethic when it comes to anger. So, three parts. Be angry, don't sin. Secondly, but don't let the sun set while you're angry. Third, lest we give space to the devil. Okay, we'll continue here. Just going to pause. That was pretty profound. It was for me. Let that sink in. Because there's five more ethics. Verse 28. Paul continues on, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather must labor, work. Um, I've been learning a lot about the Protestant work ethic. Ever since I've started my degree in, uh, in faith and work, I've had to learn where our notion, our American notion of work comes from. Some say it comes from the Protestant work ethic, the Puritan work ethic. Uh, some people don't like the Christian work ethic, uh, citing it as the cause for our abuses of the environment. Um, I'm not willing to get into that, but I do think that there is a lot of value to the Protestant work ethic, to the Christian work ethic. And this idea that we must labor and that we have seven days, six days to work, one day to rest. And this is interesting. Labor with our hands... uh, I heard a very profound saying that lazy people do not know how to rest. Isn't that interesting? How does that make sense? Because it takes planning and preparation in order to rest. Rest takes thoughtfulness and work. Lazy people don't plan, and therefore they don't know how to rest. That's an interesting, interesting statement. At any rate, rest well. I don't think the Protestant work ethic talks about burnout and destroying and abusing our earth, but I do think it talks about working hard. And so the third ethic is practice industriousness. Industrious, or just, if if that's complex, just practice working hard. Because, listen, in this new society, you can't steal anymore. We must work and perform with, each, each of us must perform with our own hands what is good, and that's, that word good translates literally, there's a definitive article there, the good. Learn how to do the good, the good. And what does that entail? Having something to share with others who are in need. So sharing 
is a fruit of the good. Sharing is a fruit of the good. So practice hard work. Why? So that we can share the good. Share the good. And that's not just monetary, but sharing services. Services rendered. Value contributed. Good work creates value. Not just for the recipient of the salary, but value for society. Value for the world. So, do the good so that you will have something to share. Okay, continue on in verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, we could interpret this to mean no potty mouth or watch your language. And certainly there is, there is uh, grounds for that. Um, I will say this much, uh, for, especially for younger people in the audience, that when it comes to uh, cussing, when it comes to using foul language, um, it, it, it influences your mood. Um, sure, the other kids are doing it. Sure, you'll hear it around. But the more you do that, the more it affects your attitude. So I'll just say that. Now, the thing is, I don't think this is kind of coming down on cussing in the potty mouth police. I think this is saying use your language in the church. Listen to this. Use your language to edify according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. I think this is talking about encouragement. And so the fourth ethic is practice encouragement. Practice encouragement. Because sometimes you can say exactly the right word and the right moment, according to the need of the moment, that gives grace. It gives grace. So this past Friday, Bobby, Paul, and myself were with Garth uh, and a pastor of another community. And um, as long as I've known Garth, known him for about 10 years now, his spiritual gift is encouragement. And you know somebody is gifted with encouragement because it's not just that they're saying, good job. You can do this, or they're not just patting you on the back. There's a sense where when, for some reason, people who are gifted with encouragement, and that's to say we should all grow in all of these gifts. But somebody who's truly gifted with encouragement says it in just the need of the moment, so the right moment at the right time, and it gives grace. And I don't know if it's because he's an older man or because it's just the perfect time or his spiritual gift, but there were times where he would say things, and I would be like, everything's going to be okay. Or like he would say something, and I'd be like, my value all of a sudden elevated 10 points. It's a gift, and it's a gift we should all practice. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard about the different spiritual gifts, like, oh, my spiritual gifts is... Uh, you know, scratching your back and you scratch my back, or a gift giving, or a spiritual gift of what else is there? Uh, uh, you know, words of affirmation. I think this is speaking about the spiritual gift of words of affirmation. Encouragement that comes and edifies at the right moment and gives grace is something that we should all learn. I've started to pick that up from Garth. And as I've started to practice that with people, I can tell. I can tell, sometimes I can tell, and it's just a pat on the back. Other times I can tell that that person really needed to hear that. I think that's something we should all practice because words of affirmation is something that people need. Practice encouragement. We continue. So there's a lot of, 
There's a lot of ethics here. It's not just one subject. It kind of goes from different subject to subject. Each of these is a sermon in its own right, right? I encourage you, if something spoke to you today, just underline that verse or that ethic and just meditate on it this week. Meditate on it. For me, that, that uh, practice, the crucial conversations, spoke to me a lot. Okay, we change gears here. Paul says in verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Spirit. How many of you have ever heard that in the church before? Don't grieve the Spirit. It's one of those statements that's so overused that we don't know what it means anymore. To grieve the Spirit literally translates what it means is to distress, to stress out the Spirit, to make the Spirit sorrowful, to affect with sadness, to make uneasy. Don't weigh down the Spirit of the church. When I was in college, so this is before I was married, I remember um, being in a college meeting and talk about somebody who was enlightened or considered himself enlightened. I thought I knew everything. And I was kind of sitting in a meeting in, with my college Christian fellowship and just kind of sitting like this. And we had, um, we had a, pa- a pastoral team. And one of the pastors, she happened to be a woman, was leading the conversation. And I was just sitting there like this. And I guess I was being a bit of a Debbie Downer. Right? Talk about grieving the Spirit. As it says here, uh, to distress, making this atmosphere sorrowful, affecting it with sadness, making the atmosphere of the church community, making it uneasy, making it uneasy. And I was sitting there kind of like that, and I guess I was grieving the spirit of the church, right? Literally grieving, making the spirit. I was being a, a Debbie Downer of the spirit of the church, and of course the spirit is the Holy Spirit. I was just kind of a Debbie Downer. I'll never forget what she said to me at that moment. She said, Wayne. And I said, What? And she said, you're a good-looking guy. You should smile more often. I was a college student at then. And she was kind of nice-looking. She was older. She was a lot older. And I remember thinking to myself, darn it. She's right. I am a good-looking guy. (laughs) Y'all are good-looking people. Smile more. Uplift the spirit of the church. The Holy Spirit is the one we share together. Let's all, through thick and through thin, all right, let's, show me some teeth. Come on, folks. Show me some teeth. Show me some teeth, Jenny. Show me some teeth. Come on, Sonia. Show me some teeth. Paul, Bobby, Kathy. Kathy, I know you had a kind of crazy weekend. I'm glad that things have worked out. Show me those teeth. Angel, I see you there. The spirit of the church, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Show me those teeth. This is the spirit of the church. So, don't grieve the spirit of the church. Let bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away. There's that phrase again, unclothe it. Take it off. Have a crucial conversation if you must. Put it away along with malice and instead be kind so put on, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as in God, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I think the fifth ethic here is practice radical grace. Practice radical grace. Pra- you know, I, I, I'm even just on the fly. I'm, I'm just changing this on the fly. Practice showing your teeth. How about that? That's better. Practice showing your teeth. 
I know my teeth ain't perfect, but hey, practice showing your teeth. I like that better than what I had written in my notes. All right, let's speed along and finish chapter 5. And there won't be much. It's, it's a long reading, but we'll kind of finish it off here. Therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk. There's that word again, walk. So he's saying walk around, peri, peripateo, walk around the perimeter of your life. Walk around in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice. Walk in this new way. And then he continues more into some more ethical stuff. I'm going to read a long section here from verse 3 to 14. Listen, long section coming. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness, no silly talk, coarse jesting. It's not fitting, rather giving of thanks. This you know with certainty, no immoral, impure, or covetous man who is an an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Heavy words. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes. Therefore, don't be partakers. We were formerly darkness. Now you are light. Walk as children of light. In verse 10, learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness. Expose them. It's disgraceful to speak of things done in secret. But all things become visible when exposed by light. Everything becomes visible is light. For this reason, wake up, sleeper. Arise from the dead, Christ will shine on you. So there's a big chunk there. There's a lot connecting back to the theme of truth-telling there, exposing, disclosure. Friends, disclosure is self-disclosure is probably better than forced disclosure. I will say that. I've been around in a couple of counseling situations. Self-disclosure is probably better than forced disclosure. So bring it into the light, bring things into the light. Um, there's a lot here, but there's one verse in particular that I want to focus on um, is verse 5. Verse 5. I read that when I was a young person, a young man, and it made me think I wasn't going, it made me think I wasn't a Christian. What does it say in verse 5? Verse 5 says, No immoral, impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So as a young person who felt like I was all of the above, I worried. I worried that maybe I wasn't truly a Christian or I wasn't destined for the kingdom of heaven. Or alternatively, you just read that verse and you gloss over and you say maybe it's a typo. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's just... Maybe I don't know what to do with that, so I'm not going to think about it. But it says there very strongly, if we are any of those three things, what are those three things? Covetous, I've been covetous. Impure, yeah, I've been impure. Immoral, then we're not, what, what do we do with that? How, what, what do we say? And all the more, that word immoral, does it mean amoral? That word immoral in the Greek is quite simply Pornos, pornos. So it clearly, the word immoral there talks about something that is sexual. It's where you get the word fornication from and pornography. So it's clearly talking about something sexual. So in light of that, especially in our society today, are there really just a lot of people that are not going to heaven? Well, I'm going to kind of teach a little bit here. 
Please hang with me. I'll make it quick, but I'll make it concise. I read this in light of another verse that's very important, and that verse is 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Write that down. It's not in your bulletin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. It says in one translation, anyone who is born of God, no, no one who is born of God practices sin. Well, that doesn't make me feel much better. Because God's seed is in you, you cannot sin because you've been born of God. Well, pastor, I don't see how that's supposed to help. Basically, that's saying, I'm not born of God because I sin. There's a good translation for this verse in the English Standard Version, in the ESV. Write down ESV. The English Standard Version of 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 translates it like this, and I think accurately from the Greek. No one born of God makes a continual practice of sinning. No one who is born of God will continue to sin for the rest of your life because God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. Listen to this. Because he has been born of God. He has been born of God. And that phrase, has been born, born of God, it's, it's in something called the perfect tense, which means it's a completed action in the past it's a completed action in the past. So if you're sitting here saying, I sin, maybe I shouldn't be going to heaven, don't doubt that you're a Christian is what's being said here. You have been. So the perfected tense adds those words, have been. It's completed in the past. You have been born of God. Don't doubt it. Don't doubt that you are a child of God. You have been born of God, and therefore, you cannot keep on sinning into perpetuity for the rest of your life. Keep on sinning. It's an infinitive verbal tense. Infinitive meaning into infinity, you will not keep on sinning. What's being said here is if you indeed have been born of God and don't doubt it, you will be making continual progress in your sanctification. You should be sinning less and less and less. The ethic here, number six, is practice progress. You don't have to be perfect, but you need to be on the train headed towards perfection. You don't have to be sinless, but you darn well better be on the train that is headed in that direction. And if today you are struggling with any of those covetousness, uh, impurity, or immorality, especially in its purest form, pornos, you are forgiven and loved by God, but you must be on the train that is headed towards sinlessness. So 1 John 3.9 is talking about this future reality that we Christians will one day be sinless. And we must be headed affirmatively in that direction. That's how I read this. Because honestly, if verse 5, we take this to mean no immoral, impure, or covetous person has an inheritance in the kingdom of God, pretty much that disqualifies everybody. But the true Christian is the one who is making progress and is growing and is changing and is not hung up on the same thing you were hung up on five years ago, five months ago. You must be making progress. And if you find that you're not making progress, You're saying, Pastor, I think I'm not a Christian. No, I think you're stuck. I'm not making progress in this area. 
maybe I'm not saved. No, you are in a place where you need help to get unstuck. And you've got to work on it. You've got to work on it. We must practice progress in our lives. There must be progressive sanctification. One of the marks of somebody that's really not saved is there's no concern about spiritual growth at all. When you're saying, I still sin, but I want to grow, then you're in a good place. You're, from, you're starting from the right place. But when somebody says, I go to church, but I really don't care about changing my life or getting better, then that's when you start to question, well, have you had an encounter yet with God? Sanctification is the direct overflow of justification, of a life that's been truly touched by God. You want to change. Even if you can't change, even if you can't change, you know that deep down inside you want it and you're going to fight and you're going to make progress. Let's wrap it up here. I know it's getting late. Verse 15. And we'll wrap it up with this. Therefore, be careful how you walk. There's that word again, walk. I'm telling you. It's important for Paul. Walk well, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of your time because the days are evil. So then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Here, is, he, is this kind of like the cussing thing where Paul is saying, don't cuss, don't drink alcohol? Well, I'm not sure about that. I think this is more about dissipation. What is dissipation? It's drunkenness. It's out of control. It's extreme indulgence, abandonment of self and control. So Paul says, don't fall into dissipation, loss of self-control, but be filled with the Spirit. Listen to this, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And finally, in verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And that last verse, listen to it again, be subject to each other in the fear of Christ is a good seed in connection to next Sunday when we talk about family and marriage. Because next Sunday, we're going to talk about this stuff about, you know, wives being subject to husbands and all that stuff. But remember, it says before that, be subject to one another. Anyway, more on that next Sunday. Who is supposed to be subject to whom in marriage? Next Sunday on that. But last ethic, I want to summarize this last paragraph. Is, this number seven is practice sobriety. Sobriety. I don't think Paul is anti-alcohol. I think Paul is anti-insobriety. He's anti-dissipation. He's against loss of control. He's against You know what, what he's against? He's against any, any living that's not sober. That's what he's against. Any living that is and, and you, you understand, sobriety is not just an alcohol thing. Attitudes. I know when I'm drunk on resentment or fear. Don't be drunk. Don't be caught up. Don't be so consumed that the biggest thing in your life, if it's not alcohol, it's that thing, that habit, that hurt, resentment, that hang-up. We can be addicted to those just as much. And I think what, the way I read this is what is in sobriety? What, how do you know when you're drunk on something? 
I haven't had a drink in 20 years. You ever meet somebody like that? I haven't had a drunken drink in 20 years. But you talk like that, and you're so angry all the time, you, you still seem like you're drunk. It's what you call a dry drunk. Yeah, but I haven't had a drink in 20 years. You're still drunk. You're a dry drunk. What does insobriety look like? I'll tell you and close with this. Three marks of insobriety. We know that we are... Insobriety is basically anything that keeps you from verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Can you really be drunk on whatever it is and sing, well, I kind of can't. I don't mean that kind of singing. This is a different, the lightness of spirit that comes when you're just singing psalms and hymns. and You're humming to yourself and you're humming hymns and the praises of God. And your spirit is light. You're not drunk on fear or weighed down by something. That's when you know that you're sober. How else do we know? Secondly, how, what, is in, what is in sobriety? It's basically anything that keeps you from verse 20. Always giving thanks. You ever see a drunk person, whether they're drunk on whatever it is, I'm so thankful for my life. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. God, I'm so grateful. You can't be drunk and grateful at the same time. I really, I'm firmly convinced. You cannot be drunk and grateful at the same time. And third and last, what is in sobriety? Basically, anything that keeps us from, verse 21, being subject to one another. Sobriety was when you're able to say, let it go. My wife and I went out this week on a lunch date, and we had to deal with a very honorary cashier that just uh, really was very rude to us. And my wife and I, you know, both of us were like looking at each other, and I was looking at him, and we were like, it's not worth it, you know, just let it go. And then we just walked away. But if I had been drunk on anger or resentment, or fear, or any substance, I, I'm pretty sure I would not have submitted to that person or that situation. I would have said, hey, let me give you a piece of my mind right now. I'm going to tell you what I really think about you and that dumb shirt you're wearing, or something like that, right? What is sobriety? Sobriety is quite simply being subject to one another. You can't be sober, or you can't be drunk and, be, and, and submit to somebody. Sobriety is subjecting ourselves to each other. It's always giving thanks. And third and last, it's singing. Singing. And on that note, the worship team, come up in a minute. But listen, we're going to sing because singing is the antidote. Thankfulness is the antidote. Submission, I think, is the antidote to insobriety, to drunkenness. On whatever we're drunk on. Oh, how do I get sober again? Do those three things. How do I get sober again? Give thanks, be subject, sing. I think that's, that, that'll get anybody sober. I really do. I invite you to close your eyes today. Sorry, it went a little bit long. I'll try to wrap up here, but I want to invite you to reflect on any one of those ethics, anything you underlined. Um, any of those thoughts there, just take it to the Lord right now. Uh, reflect and pray. Find a spiritual walk. Find a way to walk better.
what? Y'all are really good-looking people. You should smile more often. You are blessed. You are loved. Be thankful today. He's taking care of everything. Submit to one another. And in a moment, stand and sing with all of your heart. Sing away your fear. Sing away your worry. Sing away your insobriety. Sing it away. Lord, at this time, give this flock what they need. Give everyone here exactly what they need. Give to them, I pray. In great measure, pressed over, overflowing, still overflowing. Give them grace today that will strengthen them throughout the week. I pray for every encounter that any of you will have in the next seven days. There's nothing you can't get through that God won't take care of. There's nothing you've got coming up that is too scary. He's got this. He's got you. He'll take care of you. In Jesus' name. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.